Open your Bibles, if you will, to an obscure passage, 2 Kings chapter 13. That's in the Old Testament, before Psalms. Um, It's around the Chronicle, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuels. It's right in that area. 2 Kings chapter 13. Something happened about a week and a, I don't know, two weeks ago. I was preparing for last week's message, and I ran across this text. and And I believe the Lord brought me to it because... He said, this is the key. You ever have one of those texts in Scripture that it just so, it it, it just so moves you that you just, you're kind of like, it it kind of hits you in the face in a way that it makes you stop and and just stare in awe at what God is saying. This is one of those texts for me this last couple of weeks. And I've literally been playing this over and over and over in my heart and in my mind. And I believe what God is saying through this is a direct word to you and to me, to us as the church. Because I said a couple of weeks ago, I said, look, God is giving us the impossible. I'm going to share with you an impossible task of leading the thousand people to Jesus in 2021. What I've come to realize is that the impossibility in that is not a thousand people coming to Christ. It's believers sharing the gospel. That's the impossible part. And Jesus confirms that in Matthew chapter 9 when he says, pray for the harvest or pray for the laborers because the harvest is plentiful, but it's the laborers who are few. And so in, in, my, in, in my, my, my thinking and processing, I'm wrestling with how are we going to do this? How is it possible that a thousand people come, come to faith in Christ Jesus in 2021 through the influence that we have And it was so clear, God said, it's not by your spirit, but it's by my spirit. It's not by your words, but it's by my words. It's not by your power, it's by my power. You want to know the loneliest place on Sunday morning on planet Earth? You you, you won't guess this, but I'm going to tell you. The loneliest place on Sunday morning in all of planet Earth, I believe, is right here on a stage for a preacher to stand behind a pulpit speaking words that are devoid of the Spirit of God. In other words, when preachers stand before a congregation and preach without the power of the Spirit, without the anointing of the Spirit, all they're doing is wallowing in their own brilliant words and their empty and lifeless words. And it's the same thing that happens when we share the gospel. When we share the gospel, when we tell God's story in our own strength and in our own power, amazingly, God still works through his, his, in people's lives, but nothing near the way He works when people are yielded to the Spirit, and when God anoints them with power to speak words of life. And so I want to say to you, you can work your fingers to the bone, but if you are working in your own strength, if you are telling stories in your own strength, if you're obeying God in your own strength, you are spinning your wheels, and you're going to get very little traction. But if you seek the anointing of God on your life, and if you yield to Him, and if you allow Him to fill you, Every word you speak, God will use in ways that you never dreamed even possible. And so in 2 Kings chapter 13, there's this story. And in verse 20, it says, Elisha died and was buried. Who was Elisha? Elisha was the successor of Elijah. Elijah was the prophet of God who mightily spoke for God. He's the prophet who said, 
that there would be no rain for three years, and there was no rain for three years. And then he said there will be rain, and there was rain. He's the prophet who went up against 450 prophets and another 400 prophets on Mount Carmel. And he said to all the other prophets, the false prophets, since there's more of you than there are of me, you call on your God. And whoever's God, God, and I'll call on my God, and whichever God answers by fire, that will be the one true God. And so all 850 prophets, they cut themselves, they danced, they yelled, they cried, they screamed, they prayed, they asked their gods to answer. Their gods were silent. And then Elijah said, enough. He stood before them and he said, let's make this really impressive. He said, dig a moat around the sacrifice. Cover it with water. Cover it again. So much water that his sacrifice, his wood, and there was water in the moat. And then Elijah stood back and said, Oh God, so that these people might know that you are the one true God. Answer. And God sent fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And fear was struck in the heart of everyone listening and watching. Because they knew that the one true God had answered. This was Elijah. The very next scene, what you have is Elijah hearing from a woman by the name of Jezebel. And she said, I will kill you. Fear struck into, was, was, struck his heart and he ran and he stood under, he was laid under a tree and said, God, I can't do this anymore. I've done all I can do. And God said to him, essentially, your ministry is done. You're going to pass the torch. I'm going to take you on home. That was a nutshell version. The successor of Elijah was Elisha, this man here. Now, Elisha, by the way, the way that you'll never ever again forget who's first, Elijah or Elisha, it's very simple. Elijah J is before Elisha S. You'll never forget that again. It took me years to figure that out. When I finally did, it was like, oh. So Elisha was the successor, but there was an overlapping of time. Elijah saw Elisha and said, you are going to be my successor. And so he was an apprentice of sorts for a small amount of time. And Elisha followed Elijah, learning and understanding. And Elisha eventually became God's prophet after Elijah died. So here we have Elisha, the second prophet, who is now dead. That's not the amazing part of the story, though. What's amazing is that, very simply, the Bible says, Elisha died and was buried. Oh, that my life would count for so much that my name would be remembered in such a way. And Jeff died and was buried. But that the work of God through my life would continue. Ages and ages past my, ever, my memory. Isn't that what Count Zinzendorf said? Go and look it up. I don't know how to spell it. You'll have to Google it. He said, my goal is this, to preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That's ambition that really means something. Elisha died and was buried. The next part of the verse, now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring while some once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. 
Can we say that old Hebrew word, wow? Actually, it's a backwards, it's the same word, wow. If you put it upside down, it's the same word both ways as well. Mom. Wow. Elisha was so full of the Spirit of God that even when he was dead, he was powerful in bringing people to life. When I read that a few weeks ago, God's Spirit inside of me said this. He said, that's the way I want my people to live. That even when they're dead, people will find life. So question, the question is, how did Elijah, Elisha live this kind of life that even when he was dead, another dead body lying on top of him would spring that body back to life? I, I would have loved to have been there. And I'm not sure who'd be more surprised, the dead guy who comes to life or the people who threw the dead guy in the tomb. That would have been a little bit interesting, wouldn't it have? I mean, they're watching this invading army come, and so they're like, what are we going to do? Here, let's just put him in Elisha's tomb, and we'll come back and bury him later. So they throw him in there, and then we hear this, can you let me out of here? I mean, wow. But how was it that Elisha was so anointed by God that his dead body brought another back to life? I'll tell you how. It's because Elisha asked for it. You do not accidentally receive the Lord's anointing. You intentionally seek the Lord's anointing, and He gives it to you. Why? Because the Lord's anointing is not mystical and mysterious and way out there. It is actually an expectation of every follower of Jesus Christ. It is not something that belongs to an extreme faction of, the, of, 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 of church somewhere else. It's something that has been not only commanded, prescribed, subscribed, and freely given to God's people simply for the asking. Now, here's the deal. We have taken being anointed by God, and we have, laid, we have tagged it to the ultra-charismatic, and we have unfortunately moved as far away from that as possible and in doing so, we have thrown the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. Because Jesus said this, apart from me, you can do some things. No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do no thing apart from God's Spirit inside of you, working in you. So why would we not ask God, God, I want all of you that I can have. I want all of your power that I can have. But I don't want power so I can say I have power. I want power because I will simply want to be obedient to where you send me. It's not so that you're powerful. It's so that God can use you and work through you as he sends you. The reason Elisha was so anointed was because he asked for it. If you will, turn over into 2 Kings chapter 2. Y'all with me? 2 Kings chapter 2. I won't read the whole story, but essentially in this passage, if you go back and read it, what you have is Elijah, in the last moments, the last day or so of his life before God takes him up into heaven, Elijah tells Elisha, stay here, I'm going to go to this city. 
And Elisha says, nope, I'm going with you. And Elijah says, okay, come on. When they get to that city, the prophets in the city say to Elisha, hey, don't you know Elijah's about to die? Elisha says, shut your mouth. Speak not. They go to another city. And Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. And he says, nope, I'm going with you. So they go to the next city. The same thing happens. The prophets say, don't you know that Elijah's going to be taken up into heaven? Elisha says, I don't want to hear it. I know this, but don't talk about it. It happens again. And Elisha says, or Elijah says to Elisha, what do you want from me? What, what do you want? And Elisha says these words. He says, I want a double portion of your spirit. He flat out tells him, I want God to use me twice as much as he's used you. Do you know what he was asking? Now, why was he asking this? Well, we don't know the inclinations of his heart, but what we see through the evidence of his life is that he was not asking for power for power's sake. He was asking simply because he wanted to be obedient to who God had called him to be. And so his asking was not selfish, and it certainly was not wrong. It was the most honoring thing he could ask for. He said, I want a double portion of your spirit because I want God to use every bit of my life. I want him to use from me from my fingernails to my toenails, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Every part of me I want God to use. And so Elijah said this. He said, I'll tell you what. Well, he didn't say, I'll tell you what, but he essentially said, listen to me. He said, if you see me taken up into heaven, it will be done for you as you asked. Why, why is this so important? Because it wasn't Elisha just saying one time, hey, bless me. Okay, ding, right? I mean, he, he's not a fairy with the wand. The guy goes, oh, you want something? Okay, here we go, here we go. It's not the way it works. It is, an, it is an urgency of the heart. It is a persistent pursuing of the Spirit of God on you. It's asking God, pleading with God, urgently seeking the face of God so that He anoints you with the power from Himself. And it doesn't necessarily happen, it, I would say it doesn't often, if rarely ever happen, because you ask one time in a 15-second prayer. It's, the, it's, it's conditioning your heart to the place where you are ready to receive what God has to give you. You cannot receive the power of God's Spirit until you have emptied yourself of yourself. Because if there's yourself in you, then there's not enough room for God in you. Can I get a witness? It, it's the picture, it's the, the, the illustration of a, of a pitcher of water. If the pitcher is full and you put water into it, it's just going to overflow and mix stuff up. Let's just say you have iced tea and you have water. God help anybody that adds water to iced tea. You can't do that. That's desecrating the tea. Make some new tea, but don't just put water in it. It doesn't work that way. Because when you do, it simply dilutes what's going on here. In order for God to fill you and to anoint you, you need to remove yourself from yourself. And you do that by seeking the face of God, by confessing who you are and by confessing the things in your life that God is saying, these are things that must go. And once he scoops all of these out, once you are empty, he then says, I'm going to fill you. But here's what I think. 
this is not biblical in terms of it doesn't have a, there's not a verse that says it this way but i believe that this is a better i believe this is a picture this helps me instead of him filling you from the top i think he fills you from the bottom i think that what happens is because you're empty you tap into the source of life and you become a river of life, if, if, if you can say it that way. And it wells up from inside of you and comes up and overflows over the top. So that you just keep giving and giving and giving. And God just keeps providing and providing and providing. You know the difference between being filled by a, a spring and being filled by something out of the top, right? The spring is a never-ending source. The top, a little bit, no more, right? Elisha said to God, or excuse me, Elisha said to Elijah, I'm going to stay with you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to seek, and I'm asking, and I'm asking, and I'm asking, give me a double portion of your spirit, because I don't want any part of me to be unused by God. God made this very clear to me, or he, he, he clarified this part of the message um, by illustration a couple of days ago, I guess Friday afternoon, I went to the woods. Hunting season's almost over, and so it was a nice afternoon. I packed my gear, and I went out to the woods to hunt for, for a last time. I climbed up a tree, and I'm sitting, I'm looking at this beautiful spot. And I'm just, I'm, the wood, when, when I go hunting, my, my brain just kind of does all kinds of stuff. I think, and I process, and I'm, it, it's just, there's peace there. And as I'm, as I'm sitting in, in the woods, I know that I'm thinking about all kinds of things, and then I hear a noise, and I realize that I haven't been really hunting, I've just been thinking. And so I intentionally stop thinking about stuff, and I start listening. And now my ears have tuned into the woods, and I'm hearing things that no doubt had been going on, but I hadn't heard them because I wasn't listening for them. And here's what the Lord said. He said, Jeff, if you want to hear me, you must listen for me. Because you can't hear me unless you listen for me. Which means you can't obey me unless you hear me, unless you listen for me. And I think that what happens in your life and in my life too often is we're not listening for God, so we cannot listen to God. Does this make sense? Because we got all these things going on. It, it, you can use all kinds of words. It, it's about being intentional about seeking God. It's about having purpose in your seeking. And so what I want you to do today as a start is I want you to intentionally seek out the anointing of God on your life. Listen for Him, because once you hear Him, you can now listen to Him. And it just so happens that when you're listening for God, it's way easier to hear Him. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't get our attention, but even then, it's causing us to listen for him, right? We're just trucking along in life and everything's fine and then something happens and we're like, whoa. And God does something to get our attention so we can start listening for him, to hear him, so we can listen to him. That is what Elisha did with Elijah. 
And what God, and so the process was, Elijah said, if you're here when God takes me up, you will get your double portion. And he stuck with him like glue. I mean, he's just like, I'm not letting you go. Why? Because the promise of the anointing was worth the price of the seeking. Don't miss this. The promise of God's anointing is worth the cost of seeking God. However, the cost of the anointing is continual and it's great. As in like there is a cost to being anointed by God. What does anointing mean? It simply means that God has filled you with his spirit and you are yielding to his spirit and it's a supernatural power to do what you ordinarily in your own strength could not do. It's the difference between preaching a message that people go, oh, that's good, and preaching a message that causes people's hearts to be torn open to where they listen and God speaks directly to them. Let me illustrate. Did you feel that? Did you say yes? You're so kind. Let me try it again. That's right. Doing my best. Everything in me is trying to get it to you. And it's like stopping. Did you feel that? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I did this for First Baptist. And I actually, and I told them this. So I said, I had these nightmares last night as I was thinking through this. How I was going to do it. I said, what if somebody on the front row is wearing a hairpiece? And I, and I hit it. And the hairpiece goes. And, and he doesn't know it or she doesn't know it. And she's just sitting there and everybody else sees it. And I'm like, oh, man, that would be terrible. But it would be hilarious. It'd be terrible, but it'd be worth it because we could video it and make some money. <laughs> See, the difference in doing things on your own and doing things in the power of the anointing is the difference in using God's power and using your own power. But here's the thing. There is great cost to receive the anointing and to keep it. Because something that we need to understand is that God doesn't anoint a person, which, it, again, take the mysticism out of it. This is not some, some weird, only one or two people on the planet get this. No, every single follower of Jesus has been and God intends to anoint you to carry out his work. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. So that's his purpose. That's his plan. That is not the exception. That is the rule. But the cost of receiving the anointing is emptying yourself and seeking after him. Search for me and you will find me if you search with what? All your heart. 
if you're searching with all of your heart, you're not looking for anything else. You're looking for God. It's the same idea of, of uh, 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 Jacob. When Jacob is wrestling with God, and the, the, the morning starts to come, and, and, and the angel of the Lord says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not go, but let you go until you bless me. It's that whole idea of wrestling with God. And here's what happens in that story. The angel of the Lord says, I will bless you, but what is your name? What did he say? He said, my name is Jacob. Why would, why would that happen? Because Jacob means what? One who grasps at the heel. It's a deceiver. Him In his own flesh, he was a deceiver. His whole life, he was deceiving people. His whole life, he was jockeying, trying to get ahead. He was doing things that were selfish, not things that were honoring. And God said to him, admit who you are. And when you do that, then I can bless you. See, when you're seeking after the anointing of God, you don't find that until you come bare before Him, face to face with your own sinfulness, with your own weakness, with your own brokenness. And you find it's, it's the point at which you say, you know what? I admit, I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Because most of us are too good for God to use us. We're too good. Lord, you know, uh, I'm available from 2 to 4 on Saturday if, if, if you want. You know, Lord, I can, I can sing, so uh, I'd, be, I'd be glad. I'd be glad to lead worship. Lord, I can speak, so it would be an honor to stand before people and talk. I'm, I'm, I'm good at hospitality, so I can open up my house and people can see how beautiful it is. I'm a really good cook, so I can, I can do... You know... The heart matters. And God says, you can do it on your own or you can do it in my strength. But to do it on my strength, you're going to have to empty yourself of yourself. So we do that, and then God fills us with His Spirit, and then He sends us out, and there is a noticeable difference between ministering in the Spirit and ministering in the flesh. Can I get a witness? How many of y'all have ministered in the flesh? That's a lonely, horrible place. And then when you're ministering in God's Spirit, it's like you're sitting there, it's like, it's like you step back and you're watching God do something. You're going, wow, I didn't even know I knew that verse. I didn't even know, wow, those are, those are that's, that's wisdom. I mean, you're not saying this in an arrogant way, but you're, you're, you're sitting in awe at what God is doing because you didn't know that was possible. I said there was great cost to get the anointing. There's also a great cost to keep the anointing. If you will, turn for just a moment in Acts chapter uh, 6. Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there are seven deacons that are chosen. One of those deacons is named Stephen. This is the first deacon ordination service that ever existed in the church. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 6 says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue 
of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. In other words, everybody was against him. He was doing the works of God in such a way that everybody was against him. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Where did he get the wisdom? From God. How was he able to speak with such power? God's spirit. And I want you to know, we don't know a whole lot about Stephen, but he was, by all accounts, just an ordinary person. He wasn't a supernatural person. It was that God was supernaturally speaking through him. Then, verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard, and speak, heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people of the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that these, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth was the store of this place and changed the customs of Moses. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. How would you like to be so full of the Spirit of God that when you walked into the room, the temperature of the room shifted? How would you like to be full of the Spirit of God and anointed in such a way that when you spoke, people sat in awe wondering, who is this person and how do they speak such words? The danger in saying that is our pride and our ego could rise up and say, yeah, that's what I want. It's exactly what happened just a few chapters later when Simon the Cyrene or Simon the Sorcerer saw Peter speaking with power. Peter was preaching and there was power and people were, 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 were being moved by God's Spirit. And so Simon saw this and he said, you know what? I want some of that. He took Peter aside and he said, Peter, how much money will it cost me to buy what you've got? And Peter rebuked him and said, you have a wicked heart. What you want is for your name to be made great. And actually, that is what was happening. Because if you read the whole text, I believe it's Acts chapter 12. Um, da, 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 da. Okay, it's not. Here it is, Acts chapter 8. If you read it in Acts chapter 8, what happens is, Simon, the scripture says, was the, the, the sorcerer was one that people respected and they, they looked at and said, wow, you're powerful. He was on an ego trip. He saw that Peter had more power. He wanted to buy it so that he could be more respected. So do you see what I'm saying here? Stephen had power, but he used it for God, not for his own glory. If you want to be anointed, and you want to be anointed so people can remember your name, you might as well give up the thought of being anointed, because it ain't going to happen. Because God doesn't share the glory. God doesn't share His glory. So what's the result? The price that Stephen paid, if you look into chapter 7, he preached a sermon that was so powerful, and it was so cutting to the heart, the Scripture tells us, in um, verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, 
full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. The cost of anointing for Stephen was his life. The cost of anointing for you is your life. It means there are some things you cannot do that you want to do. There are some places you cannot go that you want to go. It means there are places you don't want to go that you're required to go. And it's a total disruption of you being in control of your own life. That's the cost of anointing. Sign me up. Why? Because there is nothing on earth that compares to knowing that you are fully surrendered to the hand of God. Do you know the result of him giving his life, though? The result of him losing his life, the very next verse says, there's a man standing there holding the cloaks of those who are doing the stoning, and the man's name was Saul. And Saul, as you know, became Paul and became a missionary to the Gentiles, and you are the result of Paul's coming to Christ. If you want to think of it this way, Stephen led you to Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. So this week I had a call from uh, a hospital. And I was asked to, uh, I'm, I'm a chaplain, so they said, hey, we've got a person who's sick with COVID, and there's not much time, would you come and uh, pray with them? And you know, I, I, I kind of hesitated a moment. My first thought was, of course, and my second thought was, oh, this is a little too close. And of course, doing, being the good preacher, I, you know, be, I, I say that facetiously. I said, yeah, of course I'll come. And I finished out working the rest of the day, and, and when I left the office, I went to the hospital. And I was a little bit nervous because, first off, I didn't know what I was going to see. I didn't know the experience, and also because it was, it was closer than I really wanted to be. But here's what drove me. I didn't know if the person knew Jesus. And I could not face God and say to him, God, I was too scared to go talk about Jesus. Just couldn't do it. So I got to the ICU, and I, I just flat out told him, I said, I'm be honest, I'm a little scared. I don't know what to do. They said, hey, don't worry. We've got all this gear. So we, I, look, I look like a Martian. I mean, I was like... I mean, I had stuff wrapped everywhere. You know, the, the machine where it has a hoe. I felt like Darth Vader, kind of. I did not say, I am your father. I didn't do that. I wanted to. And I came over and I opened the door and I walked in and shut the door. Of course, when you, they have this suction thing in there. So when you open the door, it's just... Because it's a, it's a, it's a system that, that keeps everything clean. And I walked in... And I saw the most horrifying sight you can imagine. 
a person gasping to breathe. I kind of startled the person when, when I said, hello, called them by name, because they had, they had drifted into some sort of a halfway sleep. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to startle. I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I, I'm told you want to see someone. Pulled the mask off and began to say words that I knew that the words were costing him comfort. And he, he expressed the fear of dying. And I, 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 I want to tell you this because I was, I was at a distance. Like I was kind of, you know, I wanted to, even though I had all the stuff I needed, I wanted to stay back. The moment I saw him, though, like this, it was almost as if I was forced to the bed to touch him. And I said words that I didn't even know I had. I think I started by, do you know Jesus? And we had a conversation and it was almost like I said, it was almost like I was watching this happen and the Lord very clearly spoke. He said, Jeff, the fear of what might happen to you can never keep you from talking about Jesus to someone who needs me. All of my fear in that moment was erased. After we talked and after we prayed, I mean, it, 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 was, it was almost like, I mean... I, I can't even explain it. Of course, you know, you leave and you do all the disinfection stuff and God had this, this weight in me, this urgency. And he said, this is what the church is all about. My people bearing my name to those who cannot breathe and are going to die. And I simply want to ask, and so that heightened the urgency in me to seek the face of God for the anointing of God so that nothing that I do is in my own strength. Because the time is short. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to preach the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And that's what he expects from you. Amen? So, as we close our time today, I want to ask you to seek the anointing of God. In our minds, we go so many different places. We... we, we probably look at TV and we go, wow, that means I'm going to flop on the floor like a fish. No. No, it doesn't. When God anoints you, you know because your words have power. And because the fear is erased 
And there is a supernatural courage. It's not weird. It's biblical. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, I believe it's verse 19 and 20, that we have been given the anointing of God, God's Spirit, placed inside of us as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. 1 John chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that He has anointed us. It's all over. We've just missed it somehow. So if you close your eyes and bow your head, I want to invite you, even now in the quietness of this moment, to seek the anointing of God. Remember, it's, it's not an instantaneous thing most of the time. It's God allowing you to prepare your heart and Him doing a work inside of your heart. It always begins with confession. It always begins with emptying yourself of you and it's an invitation for God to be Lord of every part of your life God I don't have anything else that I can say I just know that I want so desperately for your people to be anointed I want so desperately for you to move amongst us like we've never seen before. Father, we've tried everything we can try. And Lord, we, we don't want any gimmicks. We don't want what only what, what man does. God, we want a representation and a demonstration of your power. Because you can do in two seconds what we could try to do in our entire lifetime. Father, fall fresh on us. God, I pray in these next few moments that we would seek you and seek your anointing.